My name is Jasmine Kanick, and welcome to the third episode of Ring the Alarm, my special podcast series in partnership with The Advocate magazine, where I continue to take an exclusive look inside Jamaica through the lens and voices of its queer community. Jamaican native Nevin Powell has been quietly working to save the lives of queer Jamaicans for nearly a decade. After having immigrated to the U.S. as a teenager in 1980, nearly half a century later, he finds himself back in Jamaica. Largely self-funded and with the help of donations from his friends and strangers, Nevin has opened a secret safe house in Jamaica to help hide queer Jamaicans in fear for their lives while he assists them with seeking asylum. I spoke to Reverend Nevin Powell about his journey from Jamaica to the U.S. and now back and how the late Archbishop Carl Bean, founder of Unity Fellowship Church Movement, became a catalyst for change and hope in a country over 2,300 miles away. Please note that this episode contains depictions of sexual violence that some people may find disturbing. Know your limits and act accordingly. At the conclusion, I will tell you how you can get more involved in helping queer Jamaicans from wherever you are in the world, so make sure you listen all the way through. This generation rules the nation with version. My name is Nevin Powell, Reverend Nevin Powell, and I'm from a tiny town in Jamaica called Comfort Hall. Um, That's where I was born, that's where I grew up. Um, My parents, my grandparents lived in that community. And that's where I got my start. Um, Didn't play sports, but I played the piano and the organ and the violin because that's what my grandparents did. That's what they played. And um, if you lived in their house, you had to play. You didn't have a choice. You just had to learn. And so, so I learned. Um, Played the organ in church um, until the youngsters, I must have been 10, and the youngsters started teasing me and calling me Miss P. And so I told my grandmother I didn't want to play anymore. And she said, okay, you don't have to. And so I stopped regretfully. I had to leave Jamaica because of who I was. And you know, you then we read books, we didn't have social media. So we would read books about how freer, um, same gender loving folks were in the US. And so I couldn't help but wanting some of that. Um, I had a girlfriend while in Jamaica, but yeah, I had a girlfriend while in Jamaica. But I also wanted to experience some of what we read in books. And 
what our friends who were fortunate enough to come to the U.S., go to Canada, England, who traveled and would come back and would relay these stories to us. I just wanted some of that. And so that's why I felt I had to leave. I had to leave when I did, you know, as a young boy. Um, and just to experience some of this that the great United States had to offer. So I got here. Um, I was, like I said, 18. I just left high school and um, we lived in Boston and um, I started dating. Um, and there was an incident with the landlord and my mom. He made some derogatory comments to her. And um, so I told him that we we're gonna move. I had no idea where we were gonna go. That was totally unclear, but there was just this thing inside of me. He said, okay, we're gonna leave your house. We will not stand here and allow you to belittle my mom like that. My brother wanted to cut him up or to chop him with a machete. Um, and, and so I went, I went to my boss at the time I, I was working and I went and said, Hey, how can I buy a house? And I was 18, maybe going on 19. And he said, buy a house. I said, yeah, I want to buy a house. I want my family to move your family you live with your mom. That's my family. And, uh, by my 19th birthday, we moved into a three story house that I purchased. Um, because this man told me that I could do it after I did. And so I started the dating and, you know, started going to school and had two jobs. I just worked a lot uh, because I wanted this thing that we were told we could have living in the United States. Um, owning a house, owning cars, doing all these niceties and having a partner, having a boyfriend. Um, then getting married was not an option because nobody got married then. We just weren't allowed to. Um, but having a life with a partner, living with a partner, that was something that um, fascinated me. Then came the AIDS epidemic. And a lot of friends we had were just dying. They were sick, they, you know, they were um, a friend of mine who lives in California here now, and um, uh, he was living, he rented one, an apartment um, for me. And um, so on Sundays, we'd have this big dinner and we'd cook and a lot of friends would come by. Um, and so they would leave at nights to go to the clubs to hang out. And there were guys who, a couple of times there were guys there and Oh, I don't feel good. And it's okay, but you can stay until we get back. And by Wednesday, they were dead. They were gone. Um, and no one understood it. No one knew what was going on. And, and um, um, it just had these sores on their faces and on their bodies. And the pain. I remember the pain and the weight loss. It was just horrible. And so I wanted to use an apartment just to keep them, just so they could stay because their parents didn't know what to do with them, you know, and so the parents were, you know, you had to go, go to the hospital and they had nowhere to go. 
And so I wanted them to stay. And so some of them did stay with us. And then a friend said, you can't keep them here because if, if, they, were di- if they should die in your house, then you could get, I could get in trouble. And then I was 20 years old, 21 years old. You know, I just moved here. I didn't want to get in trouble with the law. Um, but I did anyway and just asked them not to say anything. Um, and then things got different, you know, they started having housing, um, when they became ill. Um, but a lot of this, I thought, because we thought at the time that this disease only affected white folks and, you know, and black folks, we were, um, we were immune from it. Um, and then... When it started affecting black folks, then it's like no one knew what to do. Despite the fact it was out for a couple of years, the church is nothing. Nobody did anything because, you know, we were just scared. But they were scared. I was scared. I hoped I never got it. And uh, But then my friends did. And they just they just died. So many of them. I mean, in Boston, in New, in New York, oh my heavens. We were just going back to back funerals, funerals. Um, there was one funeral I went to, very close friend of ours, and they um, uh, they couldn't. His grandparent, grandmother, couldn't find a church that would bury him. And so they finally found one, and we all came up with money. I mean, I worked, had two jobs, so I always had a couple of dollars. And so we came up with money for the funeral. And at the service, it was on a Friday evening, at the service, they, um, the minister, all they kept saying was how horrible this young man was at the funeral. And he did these illegal things and it was just so bad, it was so horrible. And after, I remember after the funeral, I went up to him and I said, what you did was wrong. Don't ask me. I must have been 23 at the time. I don't know where it came from. And I said, what you did was wrong. You had a church with his friends, his family. That's not, what you did was wrong. And he was dismissing me and I wouldn't let him pass me until he heard me. And then he just stopped in his tracks and he never said another word. And then I let him go. I was willing to punch him. And this was the minister in his robe, but what he did was wrong. That's what existed back then. So in um, 97, um, I moved to LA. Um, I moved with a very good friend of mine. Um, We had an apartment and we lived. I started working here. And we went to... Uh, a nightclub, a catch one. And um, my friend met this young lady. And I remember the young lady um, came with us, came home with us that night. So we just shoot the breeze and um, chatted for a while. And the following morning, she got up and she said she had to go to church. So I laughed at her and I said, church? <laughs> You're going to go to church? You're going to hell. <laughs> And she said, no, and I think you should come. I said, girl, you have lost your mind. 
And so she came back during the week. And um, one night she said the church was having a, a convocation and she would like us to come. And she said there were lovely people there that I would get to meet. And I said, really? And so that's how I went. <laughs> so I ended up at the church. <laughs> I went to church and um, Archbishop Carl Bean was there. And he spoke that night. Stop talking about what you came from. That's what you did. Came from it. You left it. Yeah. You weren't welcome there. You weren't comfortable there. You left it. You left it because they didn't give you room to move or to breathe or to be who you are. So don't come over here talking about the Apostolic Church and the Church of God Christ and the Church and that church. Those are the churches you left. Do what you're supposed to do in here. Make this the best church you can make. but I have never stopped going back. I never stopped. I couldn't get enough. I just couldn't get enough of him. Um, he used to call himself she, her. And that was just uh, amazing to me because this was an older man. Um, he had a robe on, he had a collar on. And in the pulpit, he would call himself her. Um, and that pronoun somehow it did something to me. Um, and then I started getting involved with the church. Um, um, and so I started that complication and um, it just continued on Sundays um, and during the week they would have different uh, programs during the week, you know, Bible study, I'd go to the Bible study and um, Across the street was Minority AIDS Project, and that fascinated me, fascinated me as well, um, because the whole HIV thing we were we knew a lot more now, but I just didn't feel we knew enough, or I felt um, enough information um, wasn't being shared, certainly not to uh, Black folks. Um, the information, it just was not being shared. That was my thought at the time. And um, so, you know, I got, I got involved and um, they, they had um, um, a feeding program where they would go downtown or to Skid Row and um, they would just set up, you know, the, the, the tables with the food on a Friday night and all the, um, the, the folks downtown, they would just get in line. And, and it's like, it, it was so orderly. Nobody had to say, get in line, you know, don't cut the line. They would just go in line and they would just stand there. And uh, we'd get the tables ready with the food and um, we'd have clothes on the, on the um, wire the fence, we put the clothes on the fence. Um, so we'd have, because Archbishop was big on getting jackets, especially in the winter time, getting jackets and gloves and, and the caps and, and socks. And we just have them and folks would just come up and they would just get the, get the plate and we'd just fix the meals and they would just, it was just amazing to me. I've never seen anything like that. Um, and I always used to say, 
Who the heck is doing this in Jamaica? That's always in my mind. Who is doing this in Jamaica? I mean, I didn't know of a place that existed where there were so many homeless people. But I thought there gotta be homeless folks in Jamaica. And who was doing this? Was this being done? What do they do when you're hungry on a Friday night and it's cold and, and it's raining? Where do you go? What do you do? I always ask the question. Um, and, and so we got more involved with the church, you know, and it was time to paint the building. I wanted to go buy the paint and, and, and um, to clean the building. And, and I just like, I could not get enough of that institution. That to me showed so much love to those who are unable to care for themselves or for those who were lost like I was. Because I was totally lost. Knew in my heart that there was something bigger. but didn't know where to find that thing, where to get it. Where did you get this? I, I, I had no idea. And as a young boy, a young man now, um, I just wanted more. I just wanted this thing. Yes, I wanted the, I'm a partner and, and a house or, you know, and, and I wanted all of that, but my soul needed to be filled. And I felt like this institution was filling that soul. Once you know that God is love and love is for everyone and that God's power is in your life, then step out into the public arena and proclaim that I am that I am. I love the Lord and I am gay, I am lesbian, I am Bristol, however you want to identify, but be dare to do it in arenas that you haven't done it in before. And that's what will begin to shape and frame, using Bishop's words, a sense of family. I felt I was getting this thing. I would leave on Sundays and I would go home and I would feel I would feel good. It was a it was a nice feeling. It was a um, uh, a fulfilled feeling that I had. And I would go home from church and I would invite, you know, folks to my home again, this thing where you feed folks on Sundays. And, um, and I would cook. I had a barbecue grill or whatever, and we'd just cook. And folks would just come through and they would just eat their heart's content. And that was so fulfilling. And then they would go home and we'd clean up. Archbishop did the Bible study. Um, and so I was always there and I was right under his nose. Um, and one Sunday, I said, no, it wasn't a Sunday, it was a Bible study. And I said, you know, because I just visited Jamaica and I said to him, I said, you know, Archbishop, the Caribbean people need you. Um, and he said, okay, son. Okay, on Sunday, church, and he said, um, Archbishop said, um, he asked me to come up front. All I kept thinking, what the heck did I do? What did I say? Is he gonna humiliate me? What, what did I do? I'm looking at everybody, but he didn't call you. Why is he calling me? And he went up, I, I, I went up, and he said, he wanted to ordain me a deacon. And he wanted me to go to Jamaica to take care of those gay folks in Jamaica. And I said, no, 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 you have, 
No, you have, um, there's Reverend Green. You know, because Reverend Green is from Jamaica. He said, no, 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 Reverend Rust, Archbishop, look. There is Reverend Rust over there. His parents are from Barbados. You know, no, no, no not me. No, 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 no. No, and, and so I'm looking at the congregation, looking, and then they started clapping for me, and I was like, what the hell is going on? You don't understand. This is me. I don't know anything. <laughs> You're talking about me. That's crazy talk, Archbishop. <laughs> and um, he started having classes, and it, it started working with me, and, and it wasn't just me. There were some others in the class, um, and the deacon training class. And the more I studied this, the more... I still thought that it was a crazy talk for me to go to, not me. No, you have seasoned reverend, everybody knew them, and everything was just, no, they could do this, not not me. Um, and in um, there was one Sunday... Um, after church, he called me. He called me to come up. And so I went up and he said, son, sit beside me. And he started to pray. And I've never forgotten. His prayer was, Lord, show us how to help him to do what you have called him to do. I'm still looking one eye open, okay. I'm not quite sure what he's talking about, but you know, uh, yeah, I, I'm ready, Lord. You know, whatever he's talking about, I'm ready. And he repeated it about three or four times. Lord, show us how to help him to do what you have called him to do. Going to Jamaica to do this work now was the furthest thing from my mind, even then. I had no no idea, no interest in going. I was living in LA, had a great job, um, very supportive job. I could be my authentic self there. Um, money was good, had a partner, um, bought a house, um, got to play my bass on Sundays and my violin and my friends would come by the house, I would play for them. and. Um, just had a wonderful house. It was a, a beautiful home and just had a great life. And um, then there was this youngster in Jamaica, Dwayne Jones. Dwayne Jones was murdered. He went to a party one night and um, he, he cross-dressed and he went to the party. And this woman saw him and recognized him. And so she outed him at the party. And they started chasing him. They, you know, started grabbing him in the club and he ran outside. And he ran and they shot him. And he fell and they shot him again. And a car, so it was a narrow driveway, dirt road, and the car came, and the car backed up over him, drove over him, 
and it stopped and they put the car in gear again and the car ran over him again. And then his lifeless body, they picked it up and threw it in a ditch. Just like someone killed a rat or a cockroach or something and they just threw it in the ditch and went back to the party, went back to party, went back to dance and to drink and to act silly while Dwayne Jones's lifeless body lay there in the ditch. After that happened, I went to the church and I said to them, I don't know what's gonna happen. Now at this point, I was a minister. I said, I don't know what's gonna happen, but my life here is done. I'm done with LA right now. Well, what happened? So I told him about what happened to Dwayne Jones. Well, you have to think this through. I said, okay, well, while I'm packing, I'll be thinking. And I came home and I started making arrangements because I knew then my journey in LA was done. In the next episode of Ring the Alarm, I'll continue my conversation with Reverend Nevin Powell about the work he is doing in Jamaica and why the need is so great. If you would like to support the Unity Fellowship Church of Jamaica Safe House, please visit ufjamaica.com. Make sure to share this podcast and to sign up for my email list at iamjasmine.com to know when new episodes drop. My name is Jasmine Kanick, and this has been Ring the Alarm, a special series lifting up the voices of queer Jamaicans on the ongoing violence they face in what has been called one of the most homophobic countries in the world. I want to thank Sam, Reverend Nevin Powell, Reverend Clarence Edward, Unity Fellowship Church, and the men and women of Jamaica who spoke with me. A special thank you to you for listening and most of all for caring. This special podcast series is brought to you in part by The Advocate Magazine, your LGBTQ plus news source since 1967. Ring the Alarm is hosted and produced by Jasmine Kanick. This episode featured music from Tenor Saw. Hey, ring the alarm. Hey, whoa. And Musical Youth. For more information, please visit IamJasmine.com. Thank you. Hey, ring me a